0: All right, so over the, the last few weeks when it comes to our marriages, parenting, families, relationships, friendships, we've really been asking one question, and it's this. If what Jesus really says is true, right, if we read the scripture, we read the gospels, if what, really, if what Jesus says really is true and possible, then what can that mean for our lives and really how does it take or what does it take to, to be able to live that way? If what Jesus says is true, then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the way that we live our lives, and, and what, like, what's the catch, right? What, what's required of us, what's expected of us when it comes to actually living this way? And we, we've talked about a couple different verses in, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the biographies of Jesus. They tell his story. And Jesus came. They tell us that when Jesus came, he preached really one message. And, and if you want to sum up that message, it's like this. Anyone and everyone has the opportunity through God's grace and mercy to reconsider to rethink, to rework the strategy for how you want to live your life because Jesus makes it possible for anyone and everyone to live a life that is, is connected to a God that loves you, a God that likes you, and a God that wants his unique goodness for you. At Adventure, we call that the with God life. I mean, but What the gospel essentially tells us is that through Jesus' life and then his death on a cross and the fact that death didn't work, right, and Jesus walked out of a tomb three days later, what he, makes is, what he makes possible for us is that you and I can live our lives through every moment, every second, every minute, every hour, every day, connected to God through his spirit. And that's a pretty amazing thing. We call that the with God life. We get to live life with God, not just with with him, but him within us, right? His spirit, his presence within us. And and we've been reading these verses out of Matthew 7 that come at the end of Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, it says this. Jesus says, everyone, and what everyone means is this, everyone right? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like someone who is wise and builds their house on a rock. When the rains come and the the floods come and the winds blow and they beat up against the house, it doesn't fall. Why? Because it's been founded on the rock. I I need us to understand that, that when Jesus says everyone, he means everyone, Right? When we say that what Jesus makes possible and what the gospel makes possible is the opportunity for all of us to rethink and reconsider and rework the strategy that we have when it comes to living life, Jesus means it. He means that everyone can do this, that no one is too far gone. You are not too messy. You are not too broken. You have not run out of opportunities to rework your life, to repent, to change the direction and trajectory of your life. That's what Jesus came to do. So that we can not just hear his words, but put them into action in our lives. To build our house on a rock, right? And that word rock, back in in this day to this audience, they would have understood that as building our house on top of a mountain, right? Right? Where, where God meets with people. That's what people back in this day believe. They believed that the, 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 the gods, right, near Eastern culture, believed that the gods, or in this case, God, the one true God, met with their people or lived up on, up, up on top of a mountain. And so what Jesus says is, hey, I'm giving you the opportunity to, to, to live your life where God lives, to live every moment with him. But you got to listen to these words and you got to do them. And then Jesus says this, anyone that, that doesn't listen to these words of mine, and Jesus, again, means everyone, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person, foolish means empty and useless, who builds their house on sand. And when the rains come and the floods come and the winds blow and they beat against the house, it falls. And Jesus says great was the fall of it, meaning that a lot of casualties. Great was the fall of it, a lot of collateral damage. It wasn't just a a property loss, it was the loss of life, it was the loss of family, it was a great fall and great crash. It costs you everything. And so over the last few weeks, as we've been kind of pressing further and further into this parable or this metaphor, right, that that Jesus uses of seeing our lives, something abstract, right? Life is kind of an abstract thing, and Jesus says, well, think of your life like a house, that's something concrete, concrete. Houses have rooms, houses have components, right? There, there, there's equipment that makes your house run. Jesus says, let's start to look at it like this. And, and Jesus, he started a few weeks ago as we unpacked this with the foundation, right? What our lives are built on. And according to Jesus, what your life is built on, right? Either the rock or, or, or sand, right? The rock, which is his truth, or, or sand, which is kind of our version of the truth. Jesus says, that's what's going to be the difference maker. in whether your life is, is still standing or not, after the the wildfires of our society and our our culture hit your life. The difference, the difference maker as to will your life still be there? Will you still be standing after these kind of I didn't see that coming moments? Jesus says the difference maker is where the foundation of your life is. And you can build that on the rock on top of a mountain, or you can build that on the sand in the middle of a desert. And we said every week, and I think this bears... Repeating, right, Jesus does not promise us a fire-free life. He doesn't say, this is not like prosperity gospel. Jesus doesn't say that if you trust and follow me, that I'll make all your problems go away, I'll pay all your bills, I'll make sure you're never hungry, that you have great vacations, right? All those kinds, things. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't promise, nowhere in scripture do we see Jesus promise us a life that that is free of fires, but what we see Jesus promise us is a fireproof life. That won't burn down, that won't collapse on us or on our spouses or on our kids or on our families or or on our friends when life gets difficult. But as we've been saying every week, that becoming a reality for us, having a fireproof life, it comes down to you and I really doing two things. We have to take ownership and responsibility. We have to take ownership and responsibility for our lives, the way we live our lives. We have to take ownership and responsibility for our marriages, how those work. We have to take ownership and responsibility for our kids, our families, our, 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 our friends, our relationships. And, and what we've been saying every week is this. It's not going to make a bit of difference if you hear, believe, or just agree with what Jesus says is a better way to live your life if you don't actually put it into practice. You can, you can agree with Jesus. You can believe in Jesus. You can believe what he says is good, right, true, and best, and do nothing with that. And it won't make a bit of difference in your Well, I believe. Why isn't it changing? Well, I agree with you, Jesus. Why, well, how come my life still looks like the way it looked before? It's because you're not put it into practice. Jesus says the difference maker is hearing these words and then doing them. Putting into action the way he tells us how to live, right? So we started with the foundation. And then next we talked about the front door of our houses, And what we said was this, the front door in our lives marks the line that defines the space between what the world says is normal and the space where God gets to define what's good, right, true, and best. The primary role of your front door is to protect those inside of your house. And just as we go forward, anytime you see the word house, just substitute the word life, okay? Because that's really what we're talking about, and that's what Jesus was getting at. So it is, the front door is designed, its primary role and responsibility is to protect everyone inside your life from things that are outside, the weather, intruders, thieves, any unwanted and unwelcome guests. And what we said a couple weeks ago is according to what we see in Scripture, the primary but not sole role and responsibility of providing and protecting your home, your life, belongs to the man, the husband, and the father in the house. It's not the sole role but it's the primary role. And as we said that week to the men, it's like, listen, if you succeed at everything else in life but fail at your primary role and responsibility of protecting and providing a space in your home where people learn to give honor and glory to God and the way they live their lives, if you succeed in everything else but fail in that, then you've completely and totally failed. And last week, we we talked about the, the thermostat, Right? And the thermostat is a, is a regulating device, we said, that monitors the environment in a space and then takes action so that that environment and that space is healthy. And what we read, the truth we read, was that the Bible tells us that women were created to reflect the likeness of God. And when we say likeness of God, what we mean is this, his character and his personality, what God is like. And to the ladies, we said this, your primary but not sole role and responsibility is to sense and monitor and regulate the levels of compassion and grace and patience and love and faithfulness and forgiveness and justice in your life and in the lives of those that are under your care. Again, that's your primary role. That's not your sole role. It doesn't mean that you're the the only source of that in your family, in your life, in your workplace, in your friendships, in relationships. It does not mean that's the case. But that is your primary role and responsibility. And the same thing we said to the fellas, we said to the ladies. If you succeeded everything else, but fail at this, then you've completely and totally failed. And so I want to say this as we transition into what we're going to talk about this week. Just one more kind of word to, uh, to the men and the kids in the room as it relates to this. When your wife or kids, your mom, students, your mom, when, when she calls you out, when she challenges you or commands that you act more like Jesus that you live more fully in the likeness of God. I need to say this, that's not nagging. It's not, right, and it doesn't need to be seen as that. It means this, that the thermostat in your life is working, that she's leaning into her God-given role and responsibility, why she was created. She's making the environment in your life healthy, in your attitude that's healthy, right? The the thing for your family, right, as as it comes to your family, right, we connect, right, we're connected to that. We listen to that. We lean into that. Why? So that the people who come into our lives experience the likeness of God more fully through us. That's what it's all about. You need to listen to your wife, kids, you need to listen to your mom, students, listen to your mom. Respond to her leadership in your house. If you think about it. When, when the thermostat in your house, like when you hear it start to click, right, click, 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 like it's trying to kick on, it's going, hey, it's too hot or it's too cold, the HVAC, the AC or the furnace doesn't go, "Ah I don't think so. Right? It responds. The furnace kicks in and heats things up. The AC kicks in and cools things down. They don't argue. They don't complain. They just do their jobs unless they don't, and that's when you call Matt Vaughn, Okay. And really, this kind of sets us up for what we're going to unpack today. Um, I touched on this really quickly last week, but I hope what you're starting to see in this, hope what you're beginning to understand in this, my prayer and what you're putting into action in all of this, is that all of this is all about a God-designed partnership. So all these arguments, right, so many of the arguments around the roles of of men and women in the church and the home and our families. And in our lives, they've kind of devolved into these power plays. The only question that we're looking to answer is who's in charge, who has the authority. Is it men or is it women? Is it husbands or is it wives? And we say the answer to that question is Jesus. That's who has all of the authority. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And what we need to begin to understand is this, is that any dominion, right, any dominion, which would be, we would say, that's power and authority. Any dominion that we have is given to us. It's not ours. We have no right to it. We're not entitled to dominion, power, and authority. It's given to us. That power and that authority is allowed by Jesus. And any power and authority we have operates completely and totally under his absolute power and authority as an act of worship to him. So men, you are the provider and protector of your home, right? You provide and you protect your wife, your kids, your family. And like Jesus, you have to be willing to give your life for theirs. Not because you worship your wife and kids, but as an act of worship to Jesus alone. That's the truth. The reason that we do what we do the reason we lean into the roles that we lean into is as an act of worship. Ladies, you are the regulator of the likeness of God in yourself, and your husband, and your kids, in your family, not because you worship them, but as an act of worship to Jesus. See, this is the divine partnership, right, that existed when, when men and women were created. You go all the way back to Genesis, that's what you see. It's, it's a divine partnership that God created. And so what happens is this, when you and I now in 2023, when we respect and honor one another, when we provide and protect our families, when we regulate and call out the likeness of God in one another, what we do in that partnership is we image and we we reflect the fullness of God to all creation. And that's what humanity was created to do. We talked about that last week. We go back into the creation story. When God created people, when he created mankind, when he created humanity, He created us to be a reflection of who he is to all of creation. That's the point and purpose of our lives. But as we saw in the creation story, as we've talked about a few different times, God, he gives us a domain, he gives us a home, he gives us dominion, which is shared authority to co-rule, men and women together, to co-rule equally under his authority. But in that home and in that authority, there are home invaders that will stop at nothing to burn it down from the inside out. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus says this in John 10, 10, right? As he talks about him him being the front door, him being the the, the good shepherd. Jesus says this. He says, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the thief, in this case, is our enemy, Satan. The only thing he's after is to take from you something that, that doesn't belong to him. To kill you and to destroy you. That's the only reason he's here. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I'm the opposite. I came that you could have life and and have it abundantly. So really, the truth is this. When we begin to live the the with God life, when we take what Jesus says and we put it into action, what we are really and truly stepping into is an abundant life. That's what Jesus promises. Not a fire-free life, but a fire-proof life that's full of of the kind of abundance that he cares about. Peace. Security. Security those kinds of things joy respect honor stability all of those things that move beyond our situations and circumstances right peace true peace is not influenced by what happens in our lives we have peace regardless of the situations and circumstances we go through joy that's not an emotion it's an attitude it's a mindset it doesn't it's not influenced by the storms or by the fires we have it regardless All of that fruit of the Spirit, right, that Jesus talks about that we see in Galatians, right, all of those can be ours if we begin to do what Jesus asks us to do. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the thief. We're going to spend some time talking about our enemy, Satan, the devil, right? I want to unpack how he plans on stealing from us, literally killing us and destroying us. And what he uses to do it. And we, we, we had to talk about the foundation. See, so here's why we're talking about this today. We had to talk about the foundation. We had to talk about the front door. And we had to talk about the thermostat first. We needed to kind of reset what we build our lives on. We needed to, to reset and understand our roles and responsibilities when it comes to provision and protection in our families. We needed to understand and reset like, what divine partnership really does and what it looks like. Like, what happens when we lean into these roles and we begin to do the things that Jesus says? Why? Because we've got to stand up to a thief that wants nothing more than to burn your house down with everyone in it. He wants to, not just you, but he wants to take down everybody that's connected to you. And here's the truth. If we leave the front door open, just a tiny little crack, he's going to find his way in. If the thermostat stops monitoring the environment, even for a moment... He can make that environment sick and toxic and unlivable. I read a quote this week that said this, that there's, there's a real and intelligent evil that has formed itself against you personally. So I know a lot of times when people talk, like, talk about stuff like this or, or I talk about this, we think about the schemes of the devil and kind of these large, like, global kind of, like that kind of context. But the truth of the matter is he's got a scheme for each and every person in this room personally. It's personal. He, want, he doesn't just want to take the church down. He doesn't just want to destroy the things that, that talk about. He wants to destroy you. Why? Because you look like Jesus. You mirror creation. There's a real and intelligent evil. It's formed itself against you personally. That evil can't touch God. It can't, do what, it can't undo what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So it's turned its full attention to the things that are intended to mirror the nature of God, reflect his character, and the things that demonstrate the life that Jesus makes possible. And that, quite simply, is you and me. And I said this a few weeks ago when we kicked this series off. We need to wake up. As a church, as a community, as a family of believers, we've got to begin to wake up and open our eyes to the fact that, that Satan has a very real scheme and plan for each one of us, right? He's not God's equal opposite, right? He's not as powerful, he's not as capable, he's not God's equal opposite. A lot of times we think, like, it, it's, like it's like the in Transformers, it's the, it's the Autobots and the Decepticons and G.I. Joe, it's G.I. Joe and, like, they're, they're equal opposite. No, that's not true. The truth is, he is powerful. He's not as powerful as our God. But he is powerful and he is organized. And since he can't undo the gospel, he can't take God down, he sets his sight on us. He sets his sights on our marriages, on our kids, on our families, and on our relationships. Why? Because those things are built to mirror and image and reflect God to all creation. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, For you, you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not children of night or darkness, so then let us not sleep. And that word sleep in Greek means live in spiritual indifference. Which is when it comes to our spirituality, we go, eh, eh, eh kind of. You're indifferent. You don't care. You're not hot. You're not cold. So we're not like this. We cannot sleep. We cannot live in spiritual indifference as others do, but here's what we have to do. We have to be awake, which means alert and cautious. We have to be sober, which means self-controlled and wise. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful, pay attention. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Right? And then Paul takes it one step further again in Ephesians 6. He says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes, which means this, The specific plans to steal, kill, and destroy you and me. That we have to put on this armor so that we can stand against the specific schemes about us, our kids, our spouses, our families that come from the devil. Paul says you got to know your enemy, right? You don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the spiritual places. Church, the truth is this. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle, and we know Jesus wins in the end. But I can't, this is not, this is my opinion. We know Jesus wins in the end, but from what I can see, right now it feels like we're losing. Right now it feels like we're losing ground. And again, in in my opinion, the primary reason is because intruders have invaded our homes. And the reason is because we weren't paying attention.
1: Take a look at this video. And I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing.
0: That was recorded in 1965. Yeah. It's happening. It's happening. Right under our noses, it's happening. So church, we have to begin to have eyes to see what's really going on. And when you do that, you can begin to see that this is happening all around us. It's also happening right in front of your faces, and that I'm guessing is it's probably already in your house. So what I want to do for the rest of our time today is I want to talk through two ways that our enemy works his way into our lives so that he can burn them to the ground. And the first one is pride. Here's the biblical definition for the word pride. It's this, it's an insolent, which means rude or arrogant, an empty assurance that trusts in its own power and resources and the stability of earthly things. Pride shamefully despises human rights. You get that? So so pride looks at another person, not as someone, but as something. It despises human rights. It objectifies the things that God created. And it violates divine laws. It violates what God says is true, right, and best. So, if we want to make a simple definition, here's what pride is Pride is a dangerous and deadly misplaced hope and confidence. And here's what pride says Pride says this as for me and my house, what Jesus says is true, right, good, and best won't actually work for us. Which is really us saying, Jesus is wrong about my life and my marriage and my kids. Which is really us saying, I have a better idea than Jesus on how to run my life, my marriage, my kids, and my family. Which is really us saying, Jesus isn't as smart as I am. Which is really me saying, I'm smarter than God. See how that plays out? Pride is sneaky, man. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's only when we begin to, to peel back the layers of some of the things that we say some of the things that we do, some of the ways that we live, some of the things that, that we believe, ultimately the things that we believe. And we start to peel back some of those layers, right, or, or the things that we choose not to believe in. What we find is the further we dig into stuff like that, at the very root is pride. Here's how it plays out. Genesis 3, right? You got your Bibles open up at Genesis 3. Not very far, maybe page 2 or 3. Starting in verse 1. It says this, He, Satan, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shouldn't eat of of any tree in the garden. Is that what he said? Are you sure that's what he said? I mean, that's how Satan starts to, to do this pride thing, right? He starts to ask these questions. Like, what did God really mean? What did God really mean when he said this to you? What did God really mean when he called you to this? What did God really mean when he told you this is who you were? What did God really mean when you said those vows at your wedding? What did God really mean when you had your kids? What did God really mean? What did God really mean? See, what, what Satan does is he uses pride. And what pride, the way pride starts to invade your home is, is it blows tiny little holes in the truth of God until that truth begins to collapse in on itself. And here's what Eve, said, Eve says to the serpent. She says, you know, no, he said, you may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the midst uh, of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to Eve, you won't die. God knows that, that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. See, the next thing that pride does is it sets us against and it causes us to doubt and question the motives and character and intention, intentions of a God who is for us and wants the best for us. We start to question him. like, What's, really, what's the catch here, man? What do you really want? What do you really want? You you just want to keep me? You You want to continue to suppress me? You want to keep me down? Is that what you want, God? And in the vacuum of that doubt in our lives, pride starts to convince us that we can run our lives better than God can. The story goes on. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, again, pride causes us to be blind to the truth and all we can see is what we want and what we desire Genesis tells us that she took the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. We talked about this a couple of weeks. Who was standing right there with her? Who was the one that God, God gave the command to, gave the direction to in the first place? And then he ate it. And we unpacked this a few weeks ago, right? This is what happens when the front door is left open and the thermostat stops working. What makes its way into this marriage and into this relationship between Adam and Eve, men and women, what makes its way in is ultimately pride. And at the end, the, the result is death and a curse on all of humanity. See, what pride on the inside does is it leads to a sick and unhealthy obsession with ourselves, with our own wants, and our own desires. And the way pride, out, pride plays out externally in our lives is through arrogant and ignorant over-involvement which is really codependence, which means this. You start to take responsibility for things or people that you're not really responsible for. You begin to claim power and authority in places where you have no power and authority. You ignore all wisdom, right? You ignore all personal, relational, moral boundaries and all the potential consequences to push your way past or through or into the lives of others to get what you want to satisfy your desires, people become means of satisfying ourselves. We justify and we exercise our own power and authority on whoever we want, whenever we want, to get whatever we want. We say things like, well, I can't get, I'll can't. i just take care of this. I'll just do it myself. Within our homes and, and marriages and our families, pride is often at the root of affairs. So I'm not getting what I want here, so I'll go get it somewhere else. Pride is usually at the root of the fight that you had the other night. Pride is what says that that, that I will not lay my life down for her or I will not voluntarily and joyfully belong to him. I will not. Pride, students and kids, is at the, the heart of the unresolved tension between you and your parents. Pride is why you refuse to reconcile or forgive the person that hurt you. Let me just say this, reconciling or forgiving doesn't mean staying in relationship with. It just means you're you're done carrying the weight that they handed you and they're never going to come take away. They're never going to say they're sorry. So you can let it go. But pride says, no, you hang on to that. You hold that over them as long as you can. And when the opportunity comes, you strike. And some of us, here's the deal, we know how deadly pride can be because what used to be our life or what used to be our lives is now just a smoldering ash heap. And pride is what started the fire that spread out of control before we could stop it. And here's the deal. We we have to be on the lookout for pride in our homes. We have to be sensing and monitoring where is pride showing up in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships. We also need to be aware of where it's in our culture as well. See, pride in our culture says I get to decide whatever gender I want to be. I can assign that. Despite the fact that the Bible says that God knew me in the womb and that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that God constructed me, that God put me together, now, God, I can do this whole gender thing better than you. I get to say what that is. Pride says I can do whatever I want with whoever I want when it comes to sex and intimacy and marriage. Pride says I get to determine what's a life and what's not, and I get to decide to kill it or not. If I want to, pride says if an election doesn't go the way I want it to, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. See, inside, pride is a sick and unhealthy obsession with yourself and your own wants. And on the outside, pride leads you to assume power and authority and responsibility in areas where you have none. Including and especially the areas where only God has power and authority and responsibility. Church, here's the truth pride and everything that goes along with it is a satanic and demonic scheme that will ultimately lead you to do the work of Satan himself by stealing, killing, and destroying. And here's the truth it's all bait. Pride is a lure. It's meant to distract you, right, through obsession with yourself, through arrogant and ignorant over-involvement on the outside, right? It's meant to distract you so that you leave the front door open, abandoned, and unprotected. Why? Because you're too busy worrying about yourself. You're too busy stepping into responsibility and authority outside where you have none. It's to distract you. You stop paying attention. You stop monitoring and regulating the environment in your family. Why? So the enemy can set fires in your life, in your marriage, and in the hearts of your kids. He wants you to look the other way so he can make his way in. One article I read said this, that the fruit of pride is anxiety because every success and failure in in every moment of your life is completely up to you. The fruit of pride is insecurity because you're only as good as your last performance. The fruit of pride is fear, because you could lose it all at any given moment. So if you're sitting here wondering, like, how do I get a good gauge on whether or not pride has invaded my home, check in on your levels of anxiety, insecurity, and fear. How anxious are you? How insecure are you? How afraid are you? Check in on those levels, and then ask ask this question, why? Why? Why am I anxious about this or that? Why do I feel insecure about this or that? Why why am I so afraid that this might happen? Here's the truth. Maybe there's an unhealthy obsession with yourself at the root of all of that. Maybe you're trying to assume power, authority, and responsibility where you don't have any. Here's what the Bible says about pride. Proverbs 16.5 says this. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Strong language. Proverbs 16, 18, and 19 said, Pride pride is what starts before destruction. A prideful spirit is what goes before a fall, something collapsing, something failing. 1 John 2 says this, For all that is in the world, in our culture, in our society, the desires, the wants of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from God but it's from the world. And what happens is this, we begin to to do one of two things, right? We talked about idolatry in here before. Idolatry is when you make anything other than God ultimate. So here are the things that we make ultimate. One, it's us. We make ourselves ultimate in our own lives. We sit in the place that only is really meant for God. Or two, we make something or someone else ultimate. We begin to worship that thing. And what John says is that that if, if it's in the world, it's not... From the Father. So you're making something that's a part of the culture and environment and scheme that Satan has set against you, you're making that ultimate in your life. So the first invader is pride. The second home invader we need to be watchful for is apathy. Right? If pride is, is kind of a dangerous or or deadly misplaced hope and confidence, then apathy is a dangerous and deadly lack of hope and confidence. See, pride and apathy, they, they, they share the same DNA in that they affect what we put our hopes and our faith and our belief in. Pride and apathy are spiritual infiltrators. Pride and apathy are meant to, to, ki- to kill and steal and destroy from the inside out. See, pride wants to inflate your soul to the point that it bursts. Apathy wants to suffocate your soul to the point that it dies. One article I read said this about apathy. In a more passive way, sin can lead to eternal death by continued and sustained neglect, which is apathy. The sinner may know that he should repent from sin, turn the other way, rethink, rework, redo your strategy. But because of of lethargy, apathy, he never bothers to overcome it. He's apathetic. He just does not care. We talked a couple weeks ago about Adam's original sin of passivity. You could also say that Adam's original sin was apathy. Adam knew what was right. He knew what God had told him, what God had said to him. And unlike pride, which would say, I know better than you, God, apathy just says, I know what God says, but I don't care and I'm not going to do anything about it. That's what it says. Here's the Bible's take. On apathy, Zephaniah, if you had that one on your bingo card today, you win, right? Zephaniah 1, 12 and 13 says this, At that time I, God, will search Jerusalem with lamps. God is looking for someone who cares. And I will punish the men who are complacent, who are apathetic, literally stagnant and curdled. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. God doesn't care about us, he won't do anything, so why do we care? Their goods shall be plundered, which means their homes, their lives, will be broken into and raided. Their houses, their lives, their marriages, their kids, their family will be laid to waste. Though they try to build houses, they try to build a life, they will not inhabit them. They will remain empty. Though they try to plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Apathy will not lead you to what you want. Revelation 3, here's what it says. says, I know your works. This is Jesus, right, speaking to the church at Laodicea. And here's what he says. He says, I know your works. You're neither neither cold nor hot, which means you're apathetic. You just don't care. And and I love this. Jesus said, I just wish you would pick one. Like, be cold or hot. Just pick one. Just do something. Either be all in with, with the gospel, be all in with the great commission, be all in with the great commandment and the great concern, be all in on those things, or just be all out. Just do something you not. He says, So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit, which means vomit, you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich and I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Pride leads us to distraction by being over involved, by trying to take power and authority and responsibility where we have none. Apathy leads us to detachment. When instead of stepping into the places where we've been called to reflect the image and likeness of God, we take no action because we don't care. We make up excuses. We say things like, well, I don't want to force my religion on anybody, right? I, I don't know about that, right? Or we say things like, well, you know, things just are the way they are. I mean, how many times in the last couple of weeks have you said, well, it just is what it is? Like we say things like, I just wish everybody would get along like, I hope, I hope both teams, good and evil, have fun. Stop. I mean, really, it's like, think about this for a second. And I need to confess something to our church today. Right? I just need you to know this. What I'm learning is that I've personally been really dismissive of the supernatural and sp- spiritual activity in our world for a long time. And recently, I feel like my eyes have been opened to see things for what they really are. And at the same time, I've also been able to see how distracted by pride I am and how detached by apathy I've become. Right. <laughs> and I've, I've begun to see where I've put myself, my wife, and my kids, and my family at risk. And I know I'm going to catch some heat for this, right? But, but here's the deal. Here's what I've come to understand. That there is now, and for some time there has been, an active effort to exclude any voice that champions the truth, life, and ways of Jesus from having a say in the direction of our government, our schools, our education system, and parental rights, and health care, and on down the list. If you haven't noticed, the main issues in schools right now, and in all levels of government in recent years, have become more spiritual in nature. The government has tried to legislate marriage. That's a spiritual covenant that God created. Right? The government, our culture, ha- has, tried to, has tried to tell us what a family is and isn't. Those are spiritual relationships created by God, designed by God with a purpose, Government, schools, culture, mayors, presidents, congresspeople. They've tried to tell us what gender and sex and sexuality really is. All of that was created by God with a divine cause and a divine purpose. We've got to see this. The things that have started to happen, the, the, the trend lately is that now you have people assuming responsibility, right, that's not theirs. And they're beginning to try to, to make rules about things that, that, that God ultimately created. So government, our culture, right, you could say this, our government, our culture has become more prideful, right? We, we claim authority and power and responsibility where we don't have it. And at the same time that, that our government and our culture has become more prideful, Christians have become more apathetic. I had a Zoom call last week with some pastors and church planners around the country. There's six of us. Pastors in Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida, Texas, California. And the one thing we talked about, and it was crazy, it was like the, it was the spookiest thing. Because the one thing we talked about when we talk about the reality of the struggles we have right now trying to do ministry in this culture is when I mean, we just can't seem to get our churches to care. We just, the thing that we're trying to overcome right now is, is, a, is a practiced and systemic apathy. We just are having a hard time getting people to care. And here's the truth, church, like two of the guys in the call, they said, you know, listen, if something doesn't change in our congregation, we're about three to six months away from closing our doors. Churches like ours cannot survive apathy. When people stop attending, and it's not just about attendance, right? We say this in here, our job is to get people and Jesus in the same room. Church, I'm going to be real with you. I see, I see more empty seats and I have seen more empty seats in here on Sundays, in our groups on Wednesdays, in home groups around the city. I've seen more empty seats in the last few months than I've seen in a long time. Our participation in our Say Yes campaign, which was only supposed to last four weeks, but nobody participated, so it lasted eight, was, was minimal. Churches like ours are not built to survive apathy. And churches all over the country are closing their doors. In fact, over 1,400 churches a week cease to exist. So as our government continues to get more prideful and stepping into places where only God has authority, Christians have become more apathetic. We have handed over the keys to the house. We've left the front door open. We've turned the thermostat off. And we need to wake up. As believers in Jesus, here's the truth. We have to draw a line and speak up and take action and and push back when the government forbids something that God commands or commands something that God forbids. And hear this, right? If the issue you have is outside of what God commands or God forbids in the Bible, if the issue you have with culture or government is outside of what you read in Scripture, then here's the deal. It's a personal issue for you to sort out. It's not a spiritual one for the church to take on. And we shouldn't try to make it into one. But can I tell you this, the reason that Jesus was crucified was because he spoke back to the government. He spoke truth to power. I mean, when Pilate looked at him and said, are you the king? I mean, they say you're the king of the Jews. Are you really who you say you are? And Jesus said, man, here's the deal. With one word, I could call down an army and stop all of this. And they killed him for it. Only the Romans were allowed to convict people of capital punishment. Only the Romans were allowed to to crucify people. The, that was a Roman conviction. Why? Because Jesus spoke, spoke truth to power. Same with Paul. Same with Peter. Same with all of the apostles. John the Baptist spoke truth to power. Why? Because the government was starting to cross lines. They're issuing decrees where they kill babies. So you, we can't do this. This is not who we are. We can't, this, is, this does not work. And they killed him for it. By stepping out, It does mean that we put ourselves in harm's way. That's what Jesus did. And we follow Jesus every step. That's what Jesus says take up your cross and follow me. See, church, when when the things that we face really are spiritual issues, we have to see them as such. We have to see that the issues that we're dealing with are not Republican and Democrat things, they're bigger. See, the devil wants you to think that it's only political and that, and that if your candidate wins, everything's going to be fine. Like Paul Harvey said, he wants to get you to pray, Our Father, which Art in Washington. And if that won't work, he wants you to believe that there's nothing you can do and you might as well just give up. He wants to use pride to get you overly involved and distracted or apathy to get you detached and out of his way. Most of what is happening around us now is entirely spiritual. In church, we've got to wake up and see if, for what it really is. Every one of us knows someone in our lives, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a co worker, that needs to get in the same room with Jesus. These empty seats need to be full, not so they can come in and hear an entertaining message from me or hear music, but so we can get people in Jesus in the same room. This can happen in this place, it can happen in your living room, it can happen on a walk in your neighborhood, uh, around the, the break room at work. It doesn't matter. We have to get people in Jesus together. Apathy is not an option, it's just not. And I need you to hear me say this. I love our country. I come from a long line of army vets and marines. But I do not worship at the foot of a flag. And I do not worship at the name of a president. I worship at the foot of the cross and at the name of Jesus. And at the end of the day, I am and we have to be opposed to an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy our lives, our marriages, our kids, and our families, which is what's happening. Everything that's happening right now, at just about every level of government, is—it has to do with your marriages, your kids, and your families. They're coming after the things that are meant to image God. We cannot and must not stand by and watch. Satan used pride and apathy to invade our homes and take us down. I cannot and will not sit back and allow him to silence the voice of believers in our society and destroy things like gender and marriage and sex and family, all things that God set aside to reflect his image and his likeness. We can't. We have to care. So here's your homework. Stop pointing your finger. Number one, homework is this. Stop pointing your finger at the world and start looking into the mirror. Look into your own heart first. Look into your home. Where do you see spaces where maybe pride and apathy have already invaded? Where have you let go of your roles and responsibilities? Either because you don't care or you've let go of your roles and responsibilities because you're you're too involved in other things. What have you minimized when it comes to the very real and true spiritual and supernatural battle that we're in? Where have you said, ah, it's, it's just news, right? It's just politics or politics. Where in your life or what in your life right now is out of alignment or doesn't fit with the truth and life and the ways of Jesus? And as we've done every week, ask yourself this question. As for me and my house, we are, are you distracted by Pride? Are you detached by apathy? Jesus says, listen, here's what you can do. You can rethink, rework, reconsider your entire strategy for life. Anyone and everyone can do this. Church, I'll be honest with you. I've been ner- I was nervous about this one this morning. I didn't sleep super great last night as a result. But one thing I promised you when I stepped into this position and this role at Adventure, my very first sermon, I promised, I said, I will always tell you the truth. Sometimes the truth is difficult to say. Sometimes it's even more difficult to hear. we've got to wake up. You have to care. You have to be willing to remove yourself from the things you've been overly involved in. The places where you're trying to assume responsibility and take power and authority where you don't have any. And the places where God has clearly set aside for you to to step into. You've got to get up off the couch and into the game. You have to begin to trust him in faith that he'll take care of you. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna worship. We'll go to second hour and then probably three or four of you will come back next Sunday. <laughs> 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 We're gonna worship together. At least We'll at least pretend to be a family for five more minutes, okay? Um, if today you wanna say yes to Jesus, I'd love to meet you down front. If, if today you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you wanna join our church, would love to chat with you about that too. Let's pray. Jesus, you're good and we love you. You are, you say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. So Jesus, I pray that we would lean into that truth and that life that you offer. Lord, that we begin to walk in your ways, unashamed, unafraid. Lord, that we wouldn't be apathetic, that we wouldn't just sit back and let things happen around us, but Lord, we would begin to step into the places that you've called us to step into, not with anger, not looking to hurt, but with love and grace and truth. That we'd be willing to sit across from a neighbor, a friend, or a coworker and say, listen, the way that you're living your life, it's just gonna end in destruction. And I love you too much to see that to, to see that happen. It starts with prayer. Praying for the people that, are, that oppose us. Praying for the people uh, that, are, that are against us. Praying for our leaders. Lord, praying for mayors and, and congresspeople and, and senators and presidents. Lord, it, it requires us praying for them, not hating them, not, but, 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 but praying for them. Lord, would you grab a hold of their hearts? Would you grab a hold of their minds? Would Your spirit, which we know is everywhere, Lord, would it, would it begin to move into them? Would they lead not from a place of power, but from a place of humility, knowing that ultimately you have all the authority? Father, root and remove pride and apathy from our lives and our homes. We thank you and praise you for the grace that makes it possible. If it wasn't for Jesus, that wouldn't be an option. But because of Jesus, it is. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's stand up and worship.